Please rise for the reading of God's word. We are in the book of Daniel, reading chapter one. If you're using your Black Pew Bible, that is on page 1,383. Once more, this is Daniel 1 on page 1383 of the Black Pew Bibles. Daniel chapter 1. In the third year of the reign of Jehoiakim, king of Judah, Nebuchadnezzar, king of Babylon, came to Jerusalem and besieged it. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. And he brought them to the land of Shinar, to the house of his God, and placed the vessels in the treasury of his God. Then the king commanded Ashpenaz, his chief eunuch, to bring some of the people of Israel, both of the royal family and of the nobility, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. The king assigned them a daily portion of the food that the king ate and of the wine that he drank. They were to be educated for three years, and at the end of that time they were to stand before the king. Among these were Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah of the tribe of Judah. And the chief of the eunuchs gave them names. Daniel he called Belteshazzar, Hananiah he called Shadrach, Mishael he called Meshach, and Azariah he called Abednego. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. And God gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief of the eunuchs. And the chief of the eunuchs said to Daniel, I fear my lord, the king, who assigned your food and your drink. For why should he see that you were in worse condition than the youths who are of your own age? So you would endanger my head with the king. Then Daniel said to the steward, whom the chief of the eunuchs is assigned over Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, test your servants for ten days. Let us be given vegetables to eat and water to drink. Then let our appearance and the appearance of the youths who eat the king's food be observed by you, and deal with your servants according to what you see. So he listened to them in this matter and tested them for ten days. At the end of ten days, it was seen that they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youths who ate the king's food. So the steward took away their food and the wine they were to drink and gave them vegetables. As for these four youths, God gave them learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams. At the end of the time, when the king had commanded that they should be brought in, the chief of the eunuchs brought them in before Nebuchadnezzar. And the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king. And in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And Daniel was there until the first year of King Cyrus. This is the word of God. Let me pray for us once again. Father, thank you for this reading of your word. And now we pray for your spirit to move and to do what only he can, to give us understanding, 
and to give us hearts that are ready to receive your truth. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen. So we've started a new sermon series with the beginning of a new school year. Actually, if you look in the pew in front of you, you should see a new sermon pew card uh, informing you of our new series in the book of Daniel, where we're just covering chapters 1 to 6, and then in October, in commemoration of the Protestant uh, Reformation, the 500th anniversary, we're doing a mini-series there, then we'll pick up on our Daniel series, and then we'll move on into Advent. So um, in your bulletin, I think there is also a sermon pew card that you could take, leave it in your Bible, follow along. We always encourage you to try to read the passage the night before, uh, so Saturday night, read whatever is going to be preached the next day, kind of prepare your heart to receive God's Word. Obviously, because of the fact that we canceled uh, our service a couple Sundays ago, uh, I didn't get a chance to preach Daniel 1 last week. Henry preached Daniel 2. We're going to go back in time, and we're going to tackle Daniel 1, and then next week we'll jump into Daniel 3. So it's a little bit out of order, but I'm sure all of you understand. We're calling this series Against the Tide because we believe it is a good description of how Daniel and his friends had to live. They were exiles from Israel. They were dropped into a very foreign culture, a Babylonian culture that was very pagan and very hostile to their faith. Now, these guys weren't just your average captives. We were told that they were handpicked from among the young men of Jerusalem. They were to be re-educated and raised in a particular way so that they would become thoroughly Babylonian. So we're talking about here a vast current of cultural pressure to conform. It was pushing against these young men all the time, every day of their exile. And yet we see in these chapters that Daniel and his friends, we see them making difficult choices to swim upstream against the tide. They refuse to bow to a cultural idol that's being worshipped by everyone else they know, and they get cast into a furnace. They ignore unjust laws that violate their religious freedom to pray to God, and so they're thrown into a lion's den. There is a road that is set before them that is wide and easy, it's safe and comfortable. Many people are taking it, but they reject that road because they know that their God is found on the road that's hard and narrow and at times risky and mostly uncomfortable. The reason why we chose to study this book is because we believe it's relevant to the challenges that we are facing today. As we try to live as faithful followers of Jesus Christ, within a prevailing culture that prevails upon us to conform, to go with the flow, to adopt its values and its norms. See, in our society today, there is a tidal wave of cultural pressure pushing against Christians, against those whose allegiance is ultimately to Christ our Lord, against those who desire to live their lives privately and at the same time publicly in accordance to God's word. Christians today are under pressure to adjust and to adapt our gospel, our beliefs to fit the cultural consensus of the culture, the current consensus, I should say, of the culture. The things we believe about heaven and hell, about final judgment, we're being pressured 
to tweak those beliefs about Jesus being the only way of salvation, the only way to the Father, about the moral and sexual ethics that are being taught in Scripture, uh, about the sanctity of marriage as a union between a man and a woman, about the goodness of the human body and how it, it informs our identity as a man or a woman. These convictions, along with a host of others, are making Christianity today seem so backwards, so out of touch, so insensitive and unloving. Our views are viewed as ignorant, as bigoted. And so let's be honest. It would be so much easier to just go with the flow, to abandon these these awkward beliefs and just join the moral revolution to just ride the wave with everyone else. Unless you're contrarian just by nature, it never feels good to swim against the tide. It it is hard. It is tiring. It is costly. It, It could cost you opportunities to advance in your career. It could cost you social capital. It could cost you cherished relationships. And so that's why, friends, we need more than ever today to hear compelling testimonies of people who love God, who submit to his lordship, and who seek to faithfully live their lives in accordance to his word, while at the same time being immersed in a highly secular culture. And that's why we're studying the book of Daniel. This morning, we're covering just chapter one, and I know it's not as exciting as all the the later chapters, It's quite tame, really. There are no heroic life-or-death situations, just just a request to eat vegan, essentially. You know, not very earth-shattering. So it is tempting to to gloss over this chapter and, hey, let's move on to the good stuff. You know, the the, the stories that that, that we all hear about as children growing up, um, you know, listening to Daniel. No one talks about chapter 1. But I I do believe that we need to pause here because there's a very important lesson being given to us. You have to realize that your faithfulness over the minor things now is what is preparing you later to handle the major issues. It was the quiet faithfulness of Daniel and his friends taking a private stand over, over matters of seemingly minor importance that prepared them and made possible their later acts of public courage when they were facing matters of life and death. And so what I'm trying to say is that we must not despise the day of small things. We must learn from it, and that's what I hope we can do today. I I see three important lessons for God's people that are going to help us navigate the rough waters of our prevailing culture. I want to show you those three things. If you want to follow along, I've written them out for you in an outline in your bulletin. The first lesson is this, God's people have to swim in the ocean of culture, but they don't have to drink it. God's people have to swim in the ocean of culture, but they don't have to drink it. Unless you plan on living in a cave, unless you plan on living on a mountaintop, off the grid, all by yourself, friends, you cannot escape culture. You are swimming in it. It is the water all around you. Now, the word culture obviously could mean many things, many nuances. And so let's be be clear here. 
When I speak of the word culture, I'm using it much like the Bible uses the word world, the world, with more of a, a negative connotation attached. It's the world that is opposed to God and God's people. It is it's the culture that is opposed in the same way. So that's how I'm using it here. So just as Jesus' disciples are told that they live in the world, but as he said to them in John 17, his disciples are not to be of the world. Well, in the same way, we can say Christians are in, but not of the culture. You have to live in the culture, but you don't have to imbibe its values and its norms. So Daniel and his friends, they embody this principle faithfully and courageously. But first, we need to understand the context in which they operated, in which they lived. Now, the very first verse of the book grounds us historically in the year 605 B.C. That was the year that Nebuchadnezzar of Babylon, he led his first campaign against the kingdom of Judah, besieging the capital of Jerusalem. Now, by this time in Israel's history, the kingdom was long divided into two. And so the northern kingdom had already been defeated and demolished by the Assyrians, and that left just the southern kingdom of Judah remaining. And its king is, as mentioned in verse 1, was Jehoiakim. Now at this point, at this point, Judah was really just a pawn on the world stage full of superpowers, including Assyria, Egypt, and Babylon. The latter, Babylon, being, of course, the fastest rising and the greatest threat to the security of Judah. In 605 B.C., Nebuchadnezzar came to besiege the city of Jerusalem, and eventually the city surrendered. And many members of the royal family and the nobility were at that point deported to Babylon, and Daniel and his friends were part of that first deportation. Now, in this first campaign, there were three in total. The, the, the final one was the destruction of the entire city and the temple. But in this first one, Nebuchadnezzar didn't destroy the city. Uh, that happens uh, in the third, and that's uh, 586 B.C. Uh, but in this campaign, he did ransack the temple. We're told in verse 2, Nebuchadnezzar ransacked the temple, took vessels from the house of God, and he placed it in, it says verse 2, in the treasury of his God, which is quite an insult, putting uh, you know, the spoils of war uh, within the temple of Yahweh, now in the temple of some Babylonian false god. Then we're told in verse 3 that the eunuch took young men from the royal family and the nobility, and he put them through an intense re-education process. They took the cream of the crop, and verse 4 it says, youths without blemish, of good appearance and skillful in all wisdom, endowed with knowledge, understanding, learning, and competent to understanding, learning, and competent to stand in the king's palace and to teach them the literature and language of the Chaldeans. If you think about it, that was a very shrewd move on the part of the Babylonians. It was just really just part of a larger strategy for how they subjugate a conquered people. You see, after you defeat a nation, you could, if you wanted to, you could set up a government filled with your own officers, but then they would likely be resented by your conquered subjects. They would be viewed as foreign occupiers. And so the people will continue to resist against you. They will continue to rebel. You're constantly going to have to be dealing with insurrections and uprisings. And so instead, what you do 
is you play the long game. You take the educated elite. You take the educated elite from among these conquered people, especially the young who are impressionable, and, and you don't throw them in prison. No, you set them up in the palace. You lavish them with the best. You impress their socks off until they come to see your culture, your civilization, as better than their own. You educate them, or more like you re-educate them with your own literature and language until they come to appreciate it. And you feed them the best foods of your culture. Because if you can get a foreigner to fall in love with your food, it's so much easier for them to fall in love with your culture. And so the Babylonians, their goal was to take the next generation of Israelites and to thoroughly acculturate them, to assimilate them into Babylonian culture to such a degree that they lose their very identity as Israelites. And then, in the future, down the road, you send them back to Israel. You send them back to Jerusalem to serve as your governors or your magistrates, those that now can be, can be trusted to be loyal and partial to all things Babylonian. If you keep on reading in verses 6 to 7, we learn that the Babylonians even changed the names of these four boys. Their Hebrew names each contained um, the name of Yahweh God. But now their new names had references to pagan gods, to one of the many gods of the Babylonians. Now, for us, you know, a name change may not be all that significant, but you have to realize that in ancient cultures, your name was integrally and intimately connected with your identity. And your faith, obviously, would have been core to your identity, which is why it was so common for people's names back then to contain the name of their God. So all this to say is that what the Babylonians were doing was they were doing all they, can, they could to reshape and to redefine these young men into the image of their culture, into the image of their gods. But as we see, Daniel and his friends refused to let their newly given names shape or influence their true identity. They were fully immersed in the culture in which God had placed them. I mean, they were just neck deep in it, but they didn't let the culture overwhelm them. Instead, they just kept on swimming in the direction that God pointed them, and they flourished. They rose to positions of prominence. They contributed greatly to society, but all the while refusing to let the prevailing culture define them. They maintained their distinctly Jewish identity even in the midst of all the pressure. Daniel and his friends proved that you can faithfully and fruitfully swim in the ocean of culture without drinking it. And church, I believe this is really what we need to teach our young people. This is how we ought to train up our children. Because, friends, the, the enemy, he doesn't really change his ways. When he has a strategy that works, he just sticks with it. He's still using the same old strategy. How does he conquer a society? By targeting its young. Not by oppressing them, but by impressing them. Enticing them with the best that this world has to offer. 
The devil wants to acculturate young professing Christians into the larger secular culture around them to the point that they begin to to lose their Christian identity and to become altogether worldly. Where their lives bear no distinguishing marks, where they end up just living a life that looks no different than a non-Christian. And that's why we need more of you. More of you who, like Daniel, for years have been swimming in the, the, the ocean of culture without drinking it. We need mature Christians to get involved in our children's ministry, in our youth ministry, our college ministry, helping these young people discern the culture to how to live faithfully, showing them by your own example that it is possible. It is possible to be fully immersed in the culture and yet at the same time to live distinctly Christian lives and to maintain a distinctly Christian identity. You can be cultured and yet remain uncompromised. To those of you believers, especially you young believers who who are feeling this tension, this this pressure to follow the current of culture, I I want to encourage you right now. I I know it's hard to be a committed Christian on a highly secular campus, to be a committed Christian in a competitive work environment. It's hard. And I think the one thing that is going to help you to swim against the tide, to maintain your biblical convictions and your Christian identity, the one thing, is a deep-rooted trust in the sovereignty of God. You see, I believe that's what Daniel and his friends leaned upon to get through. They leaned upon, as they swam against the tide, this doctrine of the sovereignty of God. The prophets of old told them that they should look at their circumstances not through the eyes of man, but through a theological lens to interpret this defeat and this deportation not as God's failure to preserve his people, but as a deliberate act in accordance to God's sovereign will. You see, in this entire chapter 1, God is barely mentioned. But when he is mentioned, he's not just passively observing things. He is actively doing things. In the three times that he is mentioned in chapter 1, it says that he gave. He gave. Verse 9 It says he gave Daniel favor and compassion in the sight of the chief eunuch. In verse 17, God gave the four youth learning and skill. God is the one doing. He's the one in charge. And the the, the mention of God in verse 2 is really what stands out the most for us. Look at verse 2. And the Lord gave Jehoiakim, king of Judah, into his, Nebuchadnezzar's, hand with some of the vessels of the house of God. So apparently, to be in the hands of Nebuchadnezzar doesn't mean you've fallen out of God's. They are still in God's hands. He is still in complete control of the situation. He has his people exactly where he wants them to be. Church, we have to trust that our sovereign Lord has us exactly where he wants us to be. Immersed neck deep in a culture that is opposed and hostile to our faith. Yes, the temptations are there, but they are not too great. Yes, the pressure is real, but it is not too much. God is faithful 
and he will not let you be tempted beyond your ability to bear it. He promises that to us in Scripture. So go on. Go on reading your Bible as the very words of God. Go on trusting that Jesus is truly risen from the grave. He is alive today. Go on believing that he is the only way to God, the only way to his Father. Go on believing that the scriptures and all that they teach are true, no matter how unpopular they are now in our culture. Keep on believing. The world is going to make you worry about being on the wrong side of history. But what's far worse, what's far more disconcerting is being on the wrong side of the sovereign Lord of history. That's what you should worry about. So first lesson is that God's people have to swim in the ocean of culture, but they don't have to drink it. The second lesson, it goes like this. God's people sometimes have to plant their feet and go against the tide. As you navigate the waters of culture, you're going to be faced with countless decisions as you try to remain cultured but uncompromised. Should I attend this university? Should I join this club or this fraternity or sorority? Should I send my kids to public school or private? Or should I just, I just homeschool them? Should I watch these movies or these TV shows? Should I read these books? Should I listen to this kind of music? Should I, be on, should, I, should I be active on social media? Should I just abstain from it altogether? These are choices you are faced with all the time. Now, for the most part, I think that these decisions should be left to individual Christian consciences. I should say mature Christian consciences. That's because the Bible doesn't really speak directly to these issues. Now, obviously, if one of these particular decisions leads you to violate or to ignore a direct teaching of Scripture, then what you should do in that circumstance becomes pretty black and white. But usually, when it comes to these things, engaging the culture, we are dealing with issues that two sincerely committed Christians could disagree upon. So in this area, let's, let's be charitable to one another. But whatever you do, However you decide in engaging the culture, the Bible says it needs to proceed from a heart of faith. Romans 14 says, for whatever does not proceed from faith is sin. So that means that your heart and your heart motives have to be right. They have to be righteous. But as you go on swimming in the waters of culture, friends, there will be times when, when, when you have to just plant your feet and take a stand. If you're always swimming against the tide, if you notice that you are always going with the tide, that is a problem. Because as a Christian, as a citizen really of another kingdom, you will inevitably encounter circumstances and you will face decisions where you're going to have to make a countercultural stand. And for Daniel, we see him making that stand in verse 8. Look there with me, verse 8. But Daniel resolved that he would not defile himself with the king's food or with the wine that he drank. Therefore, he asked the chief of the eunuchs to allow him not to defile himself. So Daniel and his friends were willing to receive new names, to receive a Babylonian education, learning the literature and language of the Chaldeans. But they drew a line at the king's food and wine, and they instead asked to only be fed vegetables and water. 
But the chief eunuch is hesitant with this plan because he knows that if their health declines, it's literally his neck on the line. But they work out a deal with him where they test Daniel and his friends for 10 days, feeding them only vegetables and water. And then after 10 days, we're told in verse 15, they were better in appearance and fatter in flesh than all the youth who ate the king's food. And so from then on, they were allowed this particular exemption. Now the question for us is, why did Daniel choose royal food as his battle to fight? I mean, why did he draw the line here? Because it, it doesn't seem like he has any qualms about living in a royal palace or receiving a royal education or being pampered by royal servants. So why food? Why here? Well, the obvious thought is that it must have something to do with kosher laws, right? You know, he, he's a devout Jew. He doesn't want to be defiled by unclean foods. But keeping kosher is likely not a direct concern since he also rejected wine. And there's no kosher law. There's nothing in the Mosaic law forbidding the drinking of wine. Now, some would argue that the defilement probably concerned him because it had less to do with kosher, but more to do with the fact that these royal provisions would have first been offered to Babylonian gods. I think it's a safe assumption that the king's food and wine would have been served in the context of idol worship. And so David, I mean, Daniel doesn't want to eat food that has been sacrificed to idols. But then again, he was willing to eat the vegetables, and the vegetables would have also been given and sacrificed to those idols. So what I'm trying to say here is that we don't exactly know his motivation for drawing the line at food. But regardless, a line must be drawn somewhere. Perhaps believers living in another context, in another culture, might have drawn the line elsewhere. But at some point, you just have to plant your feet and say, this is who I am. I am a Christian. My identity is not defined, defined by the prevailing winds of culture. My convictions are not formed by popular opinion. I am a follower of God. You've got to draw a line. For Daniel came down to food, to what he ate. And if you think about it, it makes sense. Food is often connected to one's identity. I mean, you are what you eat, right? Now, no matter, if you think about this, no matter how acculturated second-generation Asians can be in an, in an American culture, one aspect of our ethnic identity that we tend to hold tightly to, we hold on to, is the food I can barely speak Chinese. I don't think like a Chinese person. I don't communicate like one either, but I still love the food. I will prefer Chinese food. Much of my Chinese identity is wrapped up with that. If not for my affinity for the food, then really, honestly, besides my face, there's not much about my identity that's Chinese. That's because I've been Americanized. And I think that's the reason why Daniel drew the line at food, because he was already being Babylonianized in many other ways. So by abstaining from royal food and wine, that was Daniel's way of, of setting himself apart 
from the prevailing culture and preserving his distinct identity as a Jew and not a Babylonian. And I think it's important to note that when Daniel did take this stand, he didn't make a big stink about it. Right? He, he didn't try to shame all of his fellow Jews who, who chose differently and did eat the royal food. He, he wasn't casting judgment upon them for their decision. So whenever you do draw a line and plant your feet somewhere, you don't have to be obnoxious about it. Yes, the goal is to go against the tide, to, to make a, a countercultural lifestyle decision for the sake of your witness to Christ. But you don't have to scream it on a mountaintop or, or all over Facebook. Be like Daniel in that his countercultural stance was done primarily for the Lord and for his own conscience. He didn't make a big stink about it. So what about you? Christian, where is God calling you to draw a line? We live in a highly secular culture where the pressure to assimilate and to join the moral revolution is growing ever stronger. And so, if, friends, if you do not decide now where that line is going to be, you will most likely be carried along by the currents of culture. So make a stand on what issues, in which decisions will you plant your feet on the firm foundation and start walking against the tide. Now, maybe it'll be related to your entertainment choices, the quality or the quantity of how much media you're ingesting. Maybe it'll be with your speech, avoiding the use of foul language, toning down the coarseness of your humor, your sarcasm. Maybe the line you draw will be re related to how you educate your children or how you actively disciple them instead of outsourcing that job to the church staff. Or maybe you'll go against the tide of unbridled consumerism and you'll resist just keeping up with the Joneses. And instead, you will live a life of simplicity very well within your means. I know it's not going to be easy walking or swimming against the tide. Have you ever tried that? It's never easy. But it is rewarding. As we saw in verse 15, these four youth passed that 10-day test, and they maintain great health despite a vegetarian diet. And of course, the lesson here is not that it's healthier to be a vegetarian. I mean, come on, who believes that? <laughs> the, lesson, the lesson is that God is faithful to intervene to prove that man does not live by bread alone, but by every word that comes from his mouth. That's the lesson here. The point is, is that you will not come to harm if, if you abstain from certain aspects of culture. There is no harm in not knowing anything about that show that your colleagues are all chatting about around the water cooler. There is no harm in being inactive on social media or not even owning a smartphone. I know some of you teens, you feel like you will be an outcast. You will be a social leper among your peers if you don't have an iPhone like everyone else. Daniel is saying, no, you will not come to harm. It is no harm. So have courage. 
draw a line and trust that God will crown your faithfulness. He sees, he sees your quiet obedience and your humble courage to go against the tide. He honors your effort to preserve your distinct identity as one of his own, as one of his children. He sees that. He honors that. That leads to our third lesson, which goes like this. The third thing is that God's people can make quite an impression and outlast the prevailing, passing culture. The dominant culture today that wields so much influence and pressure is really like the grass. Here today, gone tomorrow. As scripture says, it flourishes in the morning, but by evening it fades and withers. This highly secular, modern culture that we live in today, you have to remember, it is going to pass. But God's kingdom And God's kingdom citizens will remain. We will outlast. And by that, I I don't mean by bunkering down, huddling up in a holy huddle and just kind of waiting it out for the culture to pass us by. No, like Daniel, God's people, as we await a kingdom to come, we can still make quite an impression on the culture right now in the present. That's the hope and promise I want to leave you with because that's the hope and promise that we're left with at the end of chapter 1. If you read on in verse 17, we're told that these four youth were given by God learning and skill in all literature and wisdom, and Daniel had understanding in all visions and dreams, and that's going to be relevant in subsequent chapters. And then they're brought before Nebuchadnezzar, and it says in verse 19 that the king spoke with them, and among all of them, none was found like Daniel, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah. Therefore, they stood before the king, and in every matter of wisdom and understanding about which the king inquired of them, he found them ten times better than all the magicians and enchanters that were in all his kingdom. And it's no wonder why their wisdom and understanding were 10 times better than all the court magicians because we're told that the source of their wisdom and understanding was was God himself. He was their source. They sought these things ultimately from him. Did you see that in verse 17, it says God is the one who gave them learning and skill and wisdom. And of course, remember, we're talking here about Babylonian skill, Babylonian wisdom. And so this means that even, think about this, even pagan Babylonian learning comes ultimately from God. He's the source of all true wisdom and understanding. As they say, all truth is God's truth. All truth is God's truth. That means if anything is true, it's also good. It's beautiful, and it's of God, even if it comes from the lips of a godless teacher, even if it's taught on a a highly secular campus, or if it's being promoted in a secular company. And so I I make this point because I, I don't want you to come away with the impression that faithfulness to Christ requires a withdrawal from the culture, an avoidance of secular influences and secular education. I am not saying that the only solution here to remain faithful in going against the tide is by cutting off all contact with with the culture, by, by, by avoiding popular culture altogether. 
by, by choosing to only work for uh, a Christian employer, by, by only homeschooling your children or, or, or only sending them to Christian colleges. Now, hear me, I do commend those decisions. And I think more of us can learn from them and learn from the reasons for why certain Christians make those choices. I commend that. But if you decide, as an individual, as a family, to remain deeply engaged in a secular school or a secular work environment, then be encouraged by Daniel's example, because he proves that a faithful follower of God can still flourish in a godless environment and make quite an impression on others. No question it's going to be hard. No question it's going to require a lot of prayer, a lot of discernment. But Christians can flourish in a highly secular culture. Now, of course, though, when I say flourish, I am not referring to being successful according to worldly standards because you very well might be ridiculed. You very well might be ostracized for your faith. You might be bypassed for that promotion or pressured to, to compromise your convictions. But if you continue to seek God as the source of your wisdom and understanding and skill, as you faithfully swim in the ocean of culture without drinking it, you will flourish and be fruitful according to God's standards. Maybe not the world's standards, but God's standards. And in the end, his standards are what ultimately matter. And you're going to outlast your oppressors. Notice that last verse, verse 21, it suggests that Daniel outlasted all of his captors. He remained in his royal post until the first year of King Cyrus. That's referring to the Medo-Persian king who 70 years later allowed the Jewish exiles to begin to return home. And so this chapter really ends by forecasting the very end of the exile. And I think the message there for us as the church is to remember that in a very profound, a more profound sense, our exile from our true home is still yet to come, but it is coming. Our exile from our true home will one day end. In our case, our true king is going to come back for us. He already came once before, and when he came, he bore our sins. He took them to the cross, and we're told that on that rugged cross, he was separated from God the Father. He was, in a very real sense, exiled on the cross. The gospel says that Jesus was exiled so that you don't have to be. By his wounds, you've been healed. By his rejection, his experience of rejection, you are welcomed into the kingdom of God. So take courage, church, knowing that this world, this culture is not your home. Your home is still coming. Your exile will end someday soon. Your king is the one who guarantees it. Let's pray. Father, thank you for this word. Who knew that it would speak such a needed word to us as we try to live faithfully as your followers in this world, in this culture today. Lord, we need Jesus. We need the Holy Spirit. 
We need you to supply us with the grace, with the convictions, with the courage to take a stand, to stand on the firm foundation, which is Christ and Christ's word, to go against the tide, faithfully following you until you return to collect us, your people. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.